Welcome to another episode of Follow the Brand. I am your host, Grant McGaw, CEO of Five Star BDM, a five-star personal branding and business development company. I want to take you on a journey that takes another deep dive into the world of personal branding and business development using compelling personal stories, business conversations, and tips to improve your personal brand. By listening to the Follow the Brand podcast series, you will be able to differentiate yourself from the competition and allow you to build trust with prospective clients and employers. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. Make it one that will set you apart, build trust, and reflect who you are. Developing your five-star personal brand is a great way to demonstrate your skills and knowledge. If you have any questions for me or my guests, please email me at grant.magaw, spelled M-C-G-A-U-G-H, at 5star BDM, B for brand, D for development, M for masters.com. Now let's begin with our next five-star episode on Follow the Brand. Welcome to the Follow the Brand Podcast. I'm your host, Grant McGall, CEO of Five Star BDM, where we help you to build a five-star brand that people will follow. Just a few words can make a big difference and the right words can hit you at the right time to become transformative. My next guest, Clifford Barnes, embraces every challenge as an opportunity to empower change through dynamic discussion. He brings the issues of healthcare law to his table. Barnes believes that no matter what position or condition you are in, improving health equity in this country will give you an equal shot. How we combine health equity and value-based purchasing in the Medicaid space will address the health inequities in which health disparities exist. Barnes has reinvented himself around health equality and value-based contracting as a real incentive for providers, payers, and government to resolve these issues through appropriately structuring the healthcare landscape. One person can make a difference. Prioritizing health equity in the boardroom is his goal. Clifford Barnes is a shareholder of Epstein Becker Green in the healthcare and life sciences practice in the firm's Washington, D.C. and New York offices and has been employed with EBG for over 40 years. Clifford Barnes is a transactional attorney and represents providers including home health and nursing facilities, hospitals and hospital systems, and ancillary service companies and managed care organizations specializing in representing Medicaid, managed care companies, nonprofit associations, including Medicaid Health Plans of America. Mr. Barnes is the co-founder of Medical Health Plans of America, the National Trade Association for Medicaid Managed Care Plans. Mr. Barnes represents health plans and provider contracting, including value-based contracting. Mr. Barnes counsels clients on mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, contracting, regulatory and insurance issues, and compliance program effectiveness. Most recently, Mr. Barnes has worked with home health companies in connection with a temporary suspension from Medicaid. Mr. Barnes has also worked with EBG Advisors, a consulting firm affiliated with Epstein Becker Green, 
to implement national health insurance in British Virgin Islands. Mr. Barnes has been recognized as a super lawyer in healthcare law. Prior to law school, Mr. Barnes worked several years in health administration. Mr. Barnes has a bachelor's in business administration from Pace University, an MBA in health administration from Cornell University, and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Virginia, where he served on the editorial board of the Journal of Natural Resources Law. Let us welcome Clifford Barnes to the Follow Brand Podcast, where we are building a five-star brand that you can follow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Follow Brand Podcast. We are going to go all the way to the nation's capital. That's right. We're going to Washington, D.C., where the laws are made and people grow to be great individuals actually take their expertise and take it to a level to be impactful where at a pinnacle of where things need to happen and happen quickly and happen often to have fairness, to have dignity in what we are doing in our endeavors. We're going to talk about healthcare. We're going to talk about healthcare law. And I can think of no better person to have this discussion than Clifford Barnes, who I met through the National Association of Health Services Executives. And I tell you, as I look at his pedigree and I look at what he has been able to accomplish over his now 40-year journey from 1982 to 2022 at his current law firm, I am very, very impressed. And I want you to be impressed with our discussion today as I bring Clifford Barnes to the mic on the Follow Brand Podcast. So Clifford, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, my name is Clifford Barnes. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, some insights, some views, some challenges, some tribulations, and uh, a conversation about um, uh, where I've come from and where I'm going. Oh, beautiful. Well, let's start there. Let's start there. Because my understanding is you went to school, you graduated, I'm talking about, you know, in college, you got into the field of work and healthcare, but then you found a path in law. You went back to school. I should say you went back to school and found a path in law, which led you to your current appointment. But tell us about that journey of how you first got into college, got into the workforce, and then chose law as a profession. Wow. Well, do you have two hours for this section? <laughs> we have a few no. minutes, but go right No, ahead. no, just to say, but I mean, it's, it is, um, uh, as I think about it, it's a lot of twists and turns. Uh, it's definitely not a straight line. Um, I went to high school and I actually wanted to be an engineer because uh, my grandfather and my uncles were in construction. They were engineer types. And so... Um, uh, but I applied to school. I got into a bunch of engineering schools, but they didn't have any money. I, they, there was no scholarship money for me, at least there. Uh, and so I went back to the guidance council and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this uh, because my parents are not in a position to take out loans and neither am I. And so I think I'm going to need to apply to uh, some other schools. I need to get a scholarship to go on. So as it turns out, uh, I got uh, two scholarships, but none of them had engineering. 
So I decided to go to Pace College uh, and uh, at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. And they had a management program and I was interested in management as well. Uh, and so I started off at uh, Pace College and, and in one day, literally overheard a conversation about health administration. And and it really made sense to me. I was active at Pace. I was head of the Black Student Organization. Uh, we started our own basketball league, the Brothers Basketball League back then. Uh, and I was president of the Brothers Basketball League. And um, and so I wanted to go in business, but I didn't want to be a Xerox man or a IBM man. And healthcare just sounded as though it had some social purpose as well as a business aspect. So it seemed to make sense to me. And um, so it was at the time of the Vietnam War as well. So I decided I think I'd rather go to college than go to war. Uh, and uh, so I applied to a bunch of schools. And fortunately, the, the school that I wanted to go to that had an MBA in health administration, Cornell gave me some money and I went up to Cornell. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> I spent uh, a summer in New York and then came back to New York uh, after graduating. And uh, I fortunately had a, a couple of job offers. I didn't know what to do, but I decided to go with the smartest guy that gave me an offer. Uh -huh. and, I, I, and, and I said, because I, I, I will inevitably learn a lot. And I ended up going to work at the health department for a gentleman called Haynes Rice. And his boss was Lowell Bellin. Who was the commissioner of health? And hold on, let me stop there. You said Haynes Rice. Is that the same Haynes Rice uh, that founded the National Health Association of Health? That's that's the that's the same guy. I I worked for him because he was the smartest guy in the room, uh -huh. everywhere. So the quick story on Haynes Rice is he went to the University of Chicago and graduated in 1955. Yeah. The business school. Yeah. yeah. Number one nice. in his class. Nice. Sitting by himself. Beautiful. Very. Right? Uh, and so he was the first black on the American Hospital Association um, uh, board. Uh, uh, he was one of the founders of NASI. Uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. I mean, and he was really the force behind Blacks getting into health administration in a lot of ways. He started the uh, uh, the work study program in health administration, and one of my jobs when I got there was to help organize that uh, program. But but it was Haynes Rice who said to me uh, in 1975, Cliff, there's a real future in health law, and you ought to check it out. Now, and I will tell you, in 1975, there was no such a thing as health law. Right. Uh, they, uh, our firm, my firm started in 1974 and it was working in the health area, but it was not, didn't consider itself a health law firm because there was no such a thing. Uh, but, you know, Haynes said it. And I said, at that time, I literally said, well, you know, I don't know what I do know is the weekend in New York City. That's what I know. That's the future that I know. However, let me think about it. And as it turned out, three years later, I went back to law school. Uh, and uh, and so it was wise, wise counsel. Mm. And um, he was um, an employer and a mentor. 
and so I have uh, from that learned a lot about the importance of mentoring, uh, being mentored and mentoring. Uh, it makes it can make a huge, huge difference. And many times it's really just a few words, but those words, the right words hit you at the right time and they can be transformative as those words were for me. Well, without question, you have been mentored by one of the, the greats. And that's, you know, this brings us together even today. So how those words ring through time and that you took those things up. Now, are you, are you a New Yorker? Are you a native New Yorker? Yeah, native New Yorker, born in Brooklyn, Red Hook Projects and uh, and Queens. Yep. And so... But after law school, I decided that I uh, actually came up to New York for a couple of interviews, but decided, let me try Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, and so I'm so glad I did. It has been remarkable. It has been a, just a, a joy to be down here. Well, you're in D.C. You're now you have healthcare experience. You now have a law degree. You approached the law firm. Now, tell us that story, how you were approached by Epstein. Well, uh, uh, that, this is another story of, uh, you know, I, I actually, when I got out of uh, law school, I went to a firm that was a small corporate firm. And uh, and it was actually the firm that I clerked at my first summer. Uh, and one of the professors down at uh, the law school literally said, you know, I, I got some friends that would be great for you to work at. There. It's got a great firm. And so I was able to get a job there the, my first summer. And then my second summer, I worked with a firm in Houston. And I decided that I, I I loved Washington much more and I liked that practice more. So, you know, it's blooming where you planted. Uh, it was an opportunity to start. So I ended up, uh, because of the University of Virginia, and that's a whole story in and to itself, I decided that after graduation that I really needed to get out of the country. I just needed to immerse myself in Black people because the University of Virginia was uh, was an experience, uh, and um, and so I ended up I went actually when I ended up going to Africa for two months and uh, uh, had a wonderful experience. But when I came back in November uh, to start my job uh, at uh, the firm. Uh, I, it was uh, probably about a month and a half later that they announced that they were going to break up. Uh -huh. They were going to split in two. And so, uh, uh, you know, I think I had a, a lot more ego back then. And I was like, I don't want to go to the either parts. I, I, you know, I came for the firm. And, and so I looked around uh, on the hill, looked at other firms. And one of the guys in my office literally said, Cliff, with all this health background, you ought to go to a health law firm. And I said, that's what Haynes Rice said. <laughs> it's just amazing. And so I um, I interviewed at some places. He introduced me to uh, 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 Epstein, Becker, and Green and, um, and, and uh, a guy named Bill Copet uh, was there. Wonderful individual, wonderful man, wonderful person, a wonderful human being said, well, Cliff, you know, we don't have any black people around here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it looked like you can do what you need to do. So uh, come come on over. So uh, August 30th of 1982, I started at Epstein, Becker and & Green. And, uh, and 
August of 2022 was 40 years. 40 years. 40 years in an iconic practice known as a super lawyer. I mean, your your reputation precedes you. And, and when you think healthcare law, especially in the East Coast, your name pops up. I think that's beautiful. I want you to talk to us about the challenges, because what I heard just now is that a couple of challenges, and a lot of that relates back to your own culture, meaning you had to find, you had to go to Africa just to reroute yourself, and then work in a field in which you're going to be likely the only person of color in, not only in the room, but in the practice, probably in the area. How did you traverse that field? Yeah, well, um, it it is about being as grounded as you can and working on my own groundedness. I, I did it then, and I, I see it as even more important now. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there was an opportunity there, uh, and um, it was an opportunity that I found myself in. At that time, I was the only Black person in the firm. And, uh, and so I said, it's not, it's not bad to be the first, it's just not to be the only. And so I said, let me just, uh, put my head down and, and let's see what we can, we can get done. And, uh, I was, I was, it's very, very fortunate. It, the timing was excellent. And, uh, I, I ended up, uh, working in antitrust for a while and uh in in the healthcare space and and uh, bill copet said you know in at epstein becker we've got multiple niches so you need to begin to work on another niche so uh and then i went into my corporate work basically uh in in healthcare and i also got interested in medicaid the firm at that time was working a lot in managed care that's how it started it started in the managed care space and so Medicaid managed care was this new kind of thing that was just interested in t- to me. We had no clients. There was no, there were, there, there were no uh, 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 plans uh, that were, you know, in, in our sphere at that time. Uh, but it was interesting to me because I thought Medicaid was a, a place, particularly Medicaid managed care, that would pro- provide poor people, minority folks that qualify for Medicaid access, uh, access that they otherwise might not have. And so, uh, uh, and then in terms of just being in the right place at the right time, one of my clients ended up hiring a CEO who just finished his PhD in Medicaid managed care. (laughs) And we got together and started talking and uh, we ended up, uh, petitioning uh, the District of Columbia to start the first Medicaid managed care organization in the area. In other words, the state wasn't even thinking about it. We petitioned them to start it. Uh, and um, so I helped put it together, was their first general counsel, and then met other uh, people in the Medicaid managed care space. Uh, and I began to represent Medicaid managed care organizations. I ended up uh, starting and co-founding the Trade Association, Medicaid Health Plans of America, which exists today. Well, I'm listening to you talk about what propelled 
you forward. I'm listening to you kind of define your brand because you had to find your voice, your own voice. Because in the law firm, you're you're still an entrepreneur. You're oh, there's no question about it. It's um there are many, many, uh many, many challenges open up. And um I I have come to really embrace that every challenge is an opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. Uh and it it changes the game. Uh and uh things like I remember uh, at times when, you know, at that time everyone is in the office and they were true water cooler discussions as people standing around having some discussions. And and I will tell you, sometimes I was there and I wasn't really sure what they were talking about. Uh, and so I decided one day, well, shit, excuse that expression. I am going to talk about what I know. So I started talking about jazz music and the like. And 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 then they were getting into the conversation. I was like, well, what about that? And 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 it it was just empowering. Yeah. To just change the dynamic from my discussions uh and talking about R and B and and um and so it was it was just an eye-opening for me about uh just how i can move forward and the more the most important thing for for me to be grounded in who i am uh just what you said there being grounded in who you are and then the realization that even though some people in your office or people that you work with are of a different you know culture they could be of the majority culture but they're still interested and who you are, because we cannot just lean into the stereotypes with other what we perceive people to be or what we think they are. You have to be who you are. You have to have your voice. I loved how you framed that. You started to be yourself. You started to talk about what you're about, and then you found other people interested in that. I think that's that that's unique. Yeah, not only interested, but also how I can dominate the conversation. <laughs> uh and uh and how I could be in the conversation and it was more for that for me at that moment it was more that of uh a feeling of all right I really need to bring this to bring the plate to my table mm-hmm. uh and uh as opposed to trying to be at their table uh, and it was just a conceptual framework for me to understand how I can move forward. And um, and so, you know, as it turned out, I, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think it was seven years after I was at the firm, the senior partner, Steve Epstein, came to me and says, Cliff, you know, you're here seven years now. What do you think? You want to be a partner? So I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. So so this is a senior partner says, okay, well, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to be uh, your sponsor. And uh, and and this is this was the real conversation we were having. And you know, you're gonna be the first African American partner in this firm. And and we have to do it so that there are no questions. Mm-hmm. 
and so that means we're going to need to have a unanimous vote from the partners in the Washington, D.C. office so that when we go to the partners meeting it's in New York, and that's them as partners, uh, you know, we have a unanimous front. And so, uh, and w- so what we're going to do is I'm going to let you know if anyone is not ready and you're going to have to work with them and make them ready. Mm. And I said, okay, let's do it. So I drop by his office every once in a while and say, how are we looking? He says, well, you got to go, got to talk to so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so, and so we worked it out until they were all ready. And and he came to me and he says, "We're ready, man." And, and so, now, how long was that process? Oh, that was from the time he started uh, talking to me. It was probably five months. Five, yeah, you know. I mean, you know, it meeting. was time for that next next uh, partners meeting, uh, which was in October. Uh, so it must have been kind of April. Uh, February, April, something like that. He came well, in, let me so ask we you that, worked it through. Let me yeah. ask you this, Cliff, because you you're good at framing discussions, and you listen. And I think that was like, this is how we're going to get this done. How do you transform the healthcare delivery ecosystem when you're sitting down now, and you're talking? You you know what's on the table. You know this affects people. These aren't just papers on the table. These aren't just policies. These are people, and people will be affected. How do you frame those discussions? This episode is brought to you by Five Star BDM. Five Star BDM is a professional consulting and advisory group keenly focused on business development services for small to mid-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. Although every business is unique, they often share challenges that can be addressed through smart branding. Services include process improvement and operations, digital strategy and transformation, business intelligence, digital marketing, and personal branding. Our five-star business and personal branding company has helped a number of professionals and organizations to optimize and grow. The result is more business, more opportunities, better reach, positive outcomes. Please visit www.5starbdm.com to learn more and view all the episodes of Follow the Brand. Yeah, well, they're important discussions to have. And I I appreciate uh, your bringing that up because uh, I, I think that uh this movement i would say uh and expression of health equity these days is one of uh uh, i think a key driver the notion that uh no matter what condition and position you're in health equity will give you an equal shot you know so the, the the classic picture is if you got a very short person a medium sized person and a tall person and they're looking over a fence if they all get an equal box, it could still be too short for the shortest guy to look over the fence. So you got to have you got to have adjustments so that all of them can look over the fence, 
that's what equity is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so to find people where they are and to create an equal shot for them. And so when I think about that in healthcare, many particularly around minorities and and uh and 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 poor folks, ultimately they're at the bottom end of the rung. Uh and uh and health is 80% your environment, the uh the uh you, you know where where uh the the where you live uh and uh and and items other than healthcare services. And so it is very, very important. I believe it's beginning to happen in a significant way that we're beginning to change the uh, the focus from just providing health services to addressing what they call and what we call the social determinants of health, but uh, uh, addressing the issues, the environmental issues that impact people in their health. Uh, uh, whether it be food for, from a food desert, whether it be uh, because there's a pharmacy desert, whether it's because they're living in an environmental uh, um, uh, swamp uh, where uh, they, uh, you know, are uh, dealing with contaminants, whether it's in the water or in the uh, in the air, or whether they're in an apartment building and there's uh, rat infestation. I mean, the environment has a good deal to do with the healthcare people have. And so one of the things that we're working on and that I'm I'm working on now is how we combine health equity and value-based purchasing in the Medicaid space so that we create incentives for people to address the issues about which healthcare, uh, uh, um, health inequity exists. I love what you're talking about, Cliff, around Medicaid and health equity. I think it's so important because it definitely touches people no matter where they are. And these conversations must be had at your level so it has impact at the at the ground level where, where people live day to day. Do you is that where your passion really lies? Is that where you Yeah, yeah. This is uh you know, we talk about uh in in the in any kind of entrepreneurial space, you got to reinvent yourself. Well, I'm reinventing myself around this health equity and value-based uh, contracting because I think that there's a, uh, a you know there is a a real incentive that you can create for people to resolve these issues uh, if uh, when appropriately structured. So this creates a great combination of uh ingredients all of which uh i find is my sweet spots and so structuring transactions uh working on incentives one of the things i always believe in and you got to incentivize the conduct you want to promote and so this is a fundamental tenet of that that we've got to incentivize the ability to solve these social determinative health issues and create metrics uh, for the payer, reductions of inpatient admissions, reductions of ERs, so that while we're solving that problem, we're also lowering the cost of healthcare. Uh, and so that those lower costs can then pay the incentives for folks to resolve those problems. So we've got to 
we're creating a, a wonderful loop uh, where we can begin to tackle these things in, in an effective way. Uh, and so, let me ask you this, Cliff. We and we talked about this literally, meaning about challenges. This is a big challenge. Healthcare system, huge challenge. It it flows in many different ways. Here you are, one lawyer. You're one lawyer, and you're taking this fight to the highest level. And you want to change this landscape. Are you? Let me know, like, are, are you looking to institute more policy? Or are you are you looking for buy-in from the healthcare system? Are you looking for buy-in from the payers? Do you need the government? Do you need all the parties in the room to truly get to an equitable system? Yeah, yeah, you said it right. We need all of that. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm a believer one person can make a difference, and we all need to make a difference. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, in my work, I'm working with payers. I'm working with providers. I just recently had a, uh, uh, gave a, a talk actually at the National Association of Health Services Executives annual meeting with a group from Deloitte on prioritizing health equity in the boardroom, uh, which really went to what, how, how do boards of directors begin to take this issue and focus it and develop initiatives in their space. How do CEOs begin to look at these issues uh, and uh, and create uh, uh, various kinds of programs in their space? And so it's really about creating the tools so that people can begin in their own environments uh, to work on it. The same time uh, to uh, work with the federal government to create those incentives in the payers so that they're resolving some of these issues. Uh, one of the other things which is big in my mind is to uh, get uh, a more common understanding of how racism is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And when I say racism is a public health crisis, you know, the, 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 and, and because the, the health disparity in the United States, for African Americans particularly, is effectively the slave deficit. This this goes back to 1619, mm. uh, where it started, where it was separate and unequal. Uh, black folks didn't go to where white folks got health care, and and black folks were in effect only black folks dealt with black folks for the most part. And over the years. That continued, 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 uh, and uh, so that the care that was available to Black folks was a lot different than that was available to white folks. And then the environments in which they lived contributed to uh, uh, their uh, their health, mm -hmm. uh, and it exists to the, to this day. Uh, and so uh, the the circumstances in which people live, in some instances, some of the majority population believe that it's just them. Uh, or they believe, as racists do, that these people are just inferior. Mm. Uh, and so to label racism as a public health crisis opens the door to have a discussion about what racism is and the implications of it, so that as we craft solutions, we're not crafting solutions because, well, these people are inferior 
and that this is just the way they are. We're crafting solutions around how do we now uh, eradicate the effects of racism? What are the effects and how do we address those things so that we are looking at the problem as the problem exists today? Uh, let, and, me uh, let me ask you this. So I'm going to, when I know you, you're a lawyer and you can talk, and that is your golden uh, superpower. And it's it's beautiful. I, I hear it. Now, now I want you to talk to, I want you to go back in time a little bit. I'm going to, or I'm going to bring Haynes Rice to 2022. And I want Haynes Rice. I'm going to be Haynes Rice right now. And I'm going to ask you this. What's been happening, Cliff? What has changed since we first met so many years ago? And what is it like now? And, and talk to me about what's going on and, and help me understand have we made progress or not? Well, uh, Haynes, the first thing I would say is I would say just thank you. Uh, my uh, uh, The impact that you've had on my life is tremendous. And, uh, and, uh, and I appreciate it in all manner of ways. And um, I hold you up as often as I can. And um, because uh, I sometimes say, well, this is what Haynes Rice would do. So, uh, so when I think about what's what's happening today, I mean, some of the the things that you talked about are still relevant. You know, you told me one person can make a difference, and that is really about whatever the whatever the situation. You can make a difference, and that's true today as it was then. Uh, uh, you also said you got to bloom where you planted. You got to make it work uh, until uh, you can do something else, but you got to make it work. And so that continues to be the truth. Uh, and as you make things work, opportunities come out of the working of things. Uh, and so it's an approach that I have taken and it has served me very, very, very well. Um, and so we're. Still in a situation where, uh, you know, African-Americans are catching hell, but we've made tremendous progress. The reality is, is that we're in a duality. We're making tremendous progress, but there remains an undercurrent of racism and inequality uh, in this country. And we're going to we have to we now have to take it so that we begin to uh, uh, not only address uh, racism from uh, black folks' perspective, but we have to begin to really uh, confront white folks in the way of that this is this is an illness, uh, and we need to address it from the illness that it is, uh, and uh, begin to get pe to people to talk about uh, racism as an illness, uh, and that uh, and that. The, the 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 conduct of racism is unacceptable. We have to, we we it's our job uh to bring folks to that realization and understanding. Uh and so uh, uh I think that uh, the evolution of where we are, uh, you know, the 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 Martin Luther King's has brought us, enabled us to be to this space where we have the thing, we have 
we have what we need to do now. There, there are things that we need to do uh, to move the ball forward, uh, you know, to uh, address the the inequities that are in the world. Uh, and so uh, uh, it is, um, it's a wonderful thing to stand on the shoulders, to understand that the sacrifice that you and others have made to enable me to be where I am. And so uh, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to have this challenge and I'm ready to take it on. Well, you, my brother, have been doing it for 40 plus years. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you have put in, the passion that you have, and the vision to see it through. So I appreciate you being on the Follow the Brand Show. I want to congratulate you on a fantastic 2022. You are going to make some major changes in 2023 that are fantastic. I applaud you for everything that you're doing. And I want to thank you again for being on the Follow the Brand Show. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. You're a dynamic individual. So thank you. <laughs> now, if the audience would like to get in touch with you, what, what is the best possible way? Sure, sure. Uh, i give you my uh, email and my cell phone. That's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. The email only is fine. Email is fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will definitely get that. That's cbarnes at ebglaw.com. That's cbarnes at e for Epstein, b for Becker, g for Green, law.com. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And I want to encourage you and your entire audience in D.C., New York, and wherever they tune in to Mr. Cliff Barnes to tune in all the episodes on Follow the Brand at www.5starbdm. And that is B for Brand, D for Development, Informasters.com. Thank you very much and Happy New Year. Thank you. <laughs>